Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. All right, Chris Brogan on the show. Welcome, Chris. I've already introduced you, so don't worry about any introductions. I'm so happy to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Chris, finally, I get to have you on my podcast. I've been on your podcast so much that I feel like I've abused the privilege a little bit. No, you know, mi casa y su casa. I think that it's a great thing. I sort of think of us as, you know, neighbors. Like I would be in your tool time, I would be that guy on the other side of the fence that you only see his eyes. Uh, I don't know that show. Your me neither. <laughs> I've never seen it. I don't even know what I'm saying. But I, I, I get, I get it. I understand it. So, so Chris, I'm gonna. Um, just say what you're up to. The Freak Show on Hair of the Earth is coming out or has come out, depending on when we release this podcast. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun thing, but it's a book about weirdos and misfits and entrepreneurs. How do you define a uh, uh, misfit or a weirdo? Uh, you know, I would say the kind of people who maybe don't necessarily feel like they fit in in the general business environment. They're the kind of person who uh, doesn't really want to feel like a sheep or a robot and who he maybe has a good idea for something, but doesn't really understand how that's truly a business. Or they're the kind of person who has a business that appeals to a kind of interesting marketplace. So, you know, Tony Hawk, the professional skateboarder, is definitely a freak. But so is uh, Sam Collagione from Dogfish Head, who makes a beer. And beer is not an exactly a weird thing, but the way Sam makes it is pretty weird because he's so ridiculously passionate about every single ingredient. Um, so those are freaks. But, you know, freaks are also the kind of person who wants to be, you know, to use your term, like I did liberally in my book, you know, the employeepreneurs, you know, the kind of people who aren't just going to sit at their desk, they're going to own their commission, their part of the desk, and they're going to make it their business. So I've, I've been having a lot of fun talking up the ideas with people lately just to get a sense of what resonates with them. And for sure, it seems to resonate that there's a lot of people out there who are not yet ready to be robots or sheep. Well, you know, I think also we're, we're kind of living in this weird economic time where on the surface, all the government data seems to suggest that the economy is doing better than ever. But if you ask anyone uh, how they feel right now, they basically feel really bad about the economy. And in part, the more closely linked they are to having kind of a standard job or a standard career, the more uncertainty exists in the workplace. And a lot of this is because the reality is corporate America is firing huge chunks of employees. So uh, people are either forced to uh, become freaks or entrepreneurs uh, or they're forced into being underemployed, which is a situation that makes them less happy. So a book like yours is very important right now. And I think you really in your book, what, what I thought was so excellent is the titles, The Freak Show and Hair of the Earth. But the book is really about how to be an entrepreneur from the ground up. I really thought it was one of the best entrepreneur uh, improvement sort of books that I've read pretty much ever. So uh, you know, in your example of Tony Hawk, actually, was really interesting. I thought that was a great story in the book where he had to, he, he was this, this amazing skateboarder as a kid, was doing all these sponsorships, having a lot of fun, having the time of his life. And then, as you point out, he had to learn to take a step back so that he could eventually be a success. Like, I had no idea he had taken a big step back to be a video editor before his amazing success. I mean, now he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing, too. I, I, this is a theme that I've seen lately a lot, which is a lot of times people think that you make it and you've, you're done, but that is not the way money works. I mean, of all people I could ever talk to about this, you know it quite well, more than most humans yes. do. But, you know, uh, you might see nine-digit lifestyle for a while, nine-figure lifestyle, and get back down to a five-figure lifestyle and still figure it out. And I think that, um, you know, we are – we were told a lot of things growing up. We were told, get a good job after school, go to school, get a good job, and you're set. And that's just a lie. I just went to a fancy people high school the other day, like for the whole day, and spoke to every single class starting at period one all the way through the end. And oh my God, that's a lot of work. It was. And also, by the way, talk about uh, mental landmines. It was an entire building full of people that, you know, I didn't have a great high school experience, so I got to relive that a lot. But, um, so this is like a rich people community. And I asked every single group of them, Hey, who's gone through that situation? Like mom and dad had a, you know, horrendously not good change of fortune or whatever. And of course, high school, no one wants to put their hand up. It's almost like they all have body odor, but a bunch of hands kept sort of flipping up over the edge of the chair, just enough that I could see, but their friends couldn't that they had all gone with these crazy reversal of fortune kind of experiences. And to me, uh, you know, the way I was talking about this kind of in 09 was that pirate ships are way better than the naval fleet because the fleet has to worry about painting the masts all the same color. Meanwhile, we just go after the gold. And I think that that's, that sounds cavalier, uh, not to stretch the pun. And it also sounds a little bit like money is the object. But really, I, I think what's replaced money as the object is a real sense of satisfaction. And that's kind of why I tried to write the book is to say you can find satisfaction and your your kind of measure of success isn't necessarily always going to be tied to the money, but you know that could be one of the factors. Well, you know it, it's interesting. Like you you mentioned uh, uh, briefly, my example. So when I kind of lost everything, I had to take a big step back, and you know, kind of like those high school kids, I was really ashamed of it. Like I didn't want to tell you know, even my own family to some extent, you know, how bad it was and how, you know, and where I was moving. Like I, I totally had to downsize in every way and I was unemployed and trying to survive. And I don't know to what extent that's pervasive in the economy, but it's getting more and more pervasive that people have to get rid of this feeling of entitlement. Like, oh my gosh, I've worked here for 20 years. Now I'm going to keep on getting a raise and promotion. But I think people are getting that. People are starting to realize they need to either be, you know, kind of an entrepreneur at the workplace so they're indispensable or they need to kind of either, you know, then the other choices are be an entrepreneur on the side or be fully an entrepreneur. But so, to some extent, they have to be self-reliant no matter where they are. And I think you give really good examples and kind of step-by-step how to get there, which is why I think your book's really important. Um, you know, like one thing you mentioned, I, I really love this. You say willpower is stupid. And that really rung true for me because willpower is like a really hard thing to do and it's it's totally overrated. So maybe uh, d- describe what you mean by that. Well, when I said that willpower is stupid, I mean, really what I was kind of trying to go at is um, the whole concept that um, – so willpower is saying, I really want this thing, even though I know I shouldn't have it, but I'm going to just obsess over it and I really want it. So for instance, or I really know that I need to get up at 8 a.m. So I'm this time I'm really going to get up at 8 a.m. because I know that's what I'm supposed to do or should. And there's all this language. It's, it's all programming language in our heads that we say that pretty much sets us up to not do that. You know, because we look at it as the exception to the rule. I'm on a diet means I'm going to willfully try to uh, just dis- dis- not eat certain foods as opposed to this is the, the, the foods that I've chosen for myself because I know it fuels my body in a way that's very helpful. Um, I still have to use willpower. So does everybody. There are times, you know, just today, I really, really thought a few extra macadamia nuts would be delicious. Um, but that is not on my plan right now. So it does not go in my belly. But I, I mean, it's true of business. It's true of everything. James, you know, the other thing is, you know, when I when my first experiences as an entrepreneur in 2009, 2010, when I was really full out going for it myself, I made a mistake with willpower saying I could go after everything. I could just why not? And I blew 400,000 of my own dollars as if I had that much to begin with, which I didn't. But I blew like any kind of money I had chasing a lot of projects and ideas. So the other thing that we have to learn discipline over willpower is in what we should say no about. And I know you know about that. And I think that that's a really important uh, 
lesson Plug that for I my upcoming book, lot. The Power of No. Exactly. I snuck it in like that. But that's exactly Thank you. I think we have to say no as well. Well, that's really hard, though, because, you know, I, I, I kind of find that most people don't know how to do that. Like you don't know how to say people don't know how to say no to their employers. They don't know how to say no to family. Uh, they don't know how to say no in relationships. They don't know how to say, you know, there's a saying the customer is always right. So there's this implication that you should never say no to the customer, which is completely untrue. So I think in general, there's so many different areas where people don't know how to say no. And that, that is a part of discipline. I agree. And I, I think, you know, to the contrary, a lot of times saying no, uh, we say no to the dumb thing sometimes, you know, and, and smarter no's lead to better yeses. So anyway, that's your book. But I agree. And I, I think that that's part of learning entrepreneurship. I mean, James, when I was younger uh, and by the way, younger could just be a few years ago, like three years ago. Um, I wanted to do everything. You know, I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to write fiction and do comics. I want to do like a hundred projects at once. And, and it's not awful to do that. But, you know, I like to say to people that the sun can warm an entire field of daisies or you can focus it such that it can burn through an inch of steel. And, you know, you, you can, either one's nice, but sometimes you need the steel burning. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to share in parts of this book, because I want people to understand that, you know, magic doesn't just happen. You have to actually make the magic happen. Okay. So let's, let's get down to just straightforward tactics. Let's say I'm, I'm working my job. I'm unhappy. I wake up every morning feeling, you know, stuck, feeling like I don't really want to get out of bed, but I have a family to support. I have three kids maybe I have eight kids and then college educations are going to start coming, coming due. And, and I want to divorce my wife and on and on and on. What's the first step for me? You know, one of the first steps I was thinking about is that you have to put some sort of vision forth of where you feel at home and where you feel the best. One of the things that, so there's that really old book, do what you love and the money will follow. And a lot of people love to stab that book and say, no, not true, not true. But you know, there's a lot of missing details in that kind of like the four hour work week, uh, doesn't really mean only work for four hours. So what I think is there's a place where we really feel like we belong. And there's a, there's a sort of part of the world or an industry that we really think is our home and that we would, you know, if we were stuck in an elevator with someone, we could talk to them for four days about this thing that we're really into and never run out of things to talk about. And somewhere along the line, somebody said, well, you can't make any money with that. And one of the things I realized is that there's always a marketplace for, for the majority of things that we're into. Um, and sometimes there's some exceptions and sometimes you have to accept that something might be a hobby and that you've got to find another way to make your loot. But that's a lot less true than people think. And so my first thought is, you know, find that place where you actually can really understand the story inside and out and that you know the language and it's just really your place. And that's kind of like the setting in a book. Then second, who, who are you in that world? What's your character? Like what, you know, almost like in uh, role playing games or something, are you a rogue, a uh, wizard or whatever, but it's, you know, how do you fit into this storyline so, so that you could be helpful? And then it's, do you have some kind of a product or service that you know would help these people? And can you, can you bring that to bear? You can make all of those dreams while you're sitting at a desk somewhere. I mean, that's what Bukowski did. Bukowski worked post office jobs while he was trying to figure out how to get into the literary world that he most craved to do. Dickens was, I think, like a clerk at the town hall or something. There's lots of people who, you know, kind of had to work their day job until they figured out how to get magic to happen. J.K. Rowling, same thing. I, I picked authors because they're easy to remember, but, you know, there's lots of stories like that so james to me the the very next thing to do or the next action to be taken is basically um start figuring out now that you've got that vision you know commit to it and then what are you going to do to invest in that space How, what kind of actions can you take because the other worst thing that everyone seems to do is just get stuck in planville um you have to launch a little boat into the water and see what happens with it and then from there you know l learn I think that's really true. I, I, two, two comments I have on that. One is a lot of times people come up with good ideas, but they don't know – they either don't know how or they don't know what to do next or they don't, they don't know how to execute. They understand that execution is important, but they feel it's really big. And so you know, I always get back to the example of, of Richard Branson where he wanted to start an airline, so he didn't suddenly just buy like 20 air, airplanes and then you know 
put them in the air. He called the first execution step was he called Boeing and figured out how to go, get a good deal on leasing an airplane, one airplane. And so that's how you start an airline. That's how you do everything. That's how you take the you, you have to find kind of a small first step to to essentially launch an airline or start a magazine or write a book or start a plumbing business or whatever. Always just that one first step. The other comment is um, in terms of figuring out, a lot of times people don't know what they love. So they don't know what to do if they want to do what they love. And I always suggest people go to the bookstore. And if there's any one section where they wouldn't mind reading all the books in that section, then that's probably what they would love to do. Like if someone was going to go into the comic book sec- section and want to live, you know, read every single comic book there, then they probably want to do something related to comic books. That might not mean uh, draw uh, comic books or write comic books, but there's lots of different things in that industry. It's like you were just saying, figure out what your role is. Maybe you do business development deals between comic book companies and movie companies. I don't know. There's, there's a million different ways to kind of slice and, and dice a pie. And uh, I think all these things uh, is sort of like a guide to people on how to get out of that cubicle job or that job where you feel stuck or, or frustrated and kind of make it into um, the world where you're more self-reliant. And, and you talked a little about success being something that's, you know, some people view it as uh, success with money or success with some kind of achievement or rank or progress or whatever. But success, in, in when I define it or think about it, it, success for me means not wanting to be successful at anything. And you, you get that way as you become more self, self-reliant, which which I think is kind of where you're going with the, the freak concept, that a freak is someone who's not going to be dependent on the opinion of others, and they're going to be able to carve their own path to success. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's two ways that I like to look at it. One is that um, that part about being self-reliant. My friend Joe called me up one day and he goes, I don't know, this might be bragging, but he goes, I just get the feeling that if you drop me down into any city in the world and give me maybe 20 bucks, I'm pretty sure I could have a business running within a month. And I, that, I said, that's great. That's I, a good scale. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, you know what? I, I, I feel somewhat like that as well. And I think that, you know, I was telling a, a person this who was saying, I'm really worried. And I said, well, you know, what's everyone's real worry? They're worried that they're going to be homeless and, you know, having to beg to eat. And I said, you know, the, unfortunately a lot of the people that are homeless are people you know who are in the that we see that are homeless that doesn't count all the hidden people of the world um they have severe mental problems sometimes also drug problems they've really burned every single possible bridge there's a huge distance to fall before you're homeless i mean well, you could have absolutely no money point. you might have to live on some couches but you know failure failure is the opposite of success sometimes failure is really far below what you think it is and you can you can fall quite far and still pick yourself back up again so that's always a starting point but to me success just to just to tie off the success thing i love to say that success is me in my definition of it is uh, being able to say no to the things i don't really want to do because i think that's as employees that's how we always feel is like if we feel dragged to something you don't feel all that successful, but that's really my definition. And, and you know, you talk about that, like, uh, for instance, for employees, often employees are dragged to meetings and meetings are probably the biggest time suck and and productivity suck and everything suck in corporate America, which 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 then spills down into the employee's life. Like, that's just an hour I wasted or two hours I wasted if I was in a meeting. It's 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 the fastest way to being not productive at all. No, absolutely. And uh, that makes me think of a really long time ago, back when uh, cell phones and pagers weren't all that popular. And I went to a restaurant and I took the cell phone and the pager off and just kind of stuck it on the tabletop so that they wouldn't fall off my belt into the seat like they always do at restaurants. And the guy at the, the, the server says, wow, you must be really important. I said, let me explain how not important I am. That is a leash. And that means at any time the bosses can say, come back here, doggy. I said, the really important person in this world has a human that has their cell phone. And they turn to the human to find out if they need to be somewhere else. Anyway. It's it's funny, though, because cell phones are – it's really addictive. Like uh, most people, I think when they wake up, the first thing they do is – Check their cell phones and check all their different metrics, whether it's email or Twitter or Facebook or whatever. It's a oh, yeah. hard thing to get off that addiction. 
I, I, I think so too. I think we're, I, there's two things we're going for there. So first off, we're addic- addicted to distraction. Like it is the biggest drug that we're not really, you know, we talked for a long time about how food is an addiction that no one really criticizes too badly. They don't like fat people, but no one ever says, what, you're having a second serving of food? Um, well, I think I think distraction is one of those two. But the second thing we're, we're addicted to is we're addicted to ping and response. You know, I'm really here and I know I'm here because someone said something on my post or my tweet or my Facebook or whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm guilty of that as well. Like I feel like not only like I tend to write a lot, but I also tend to publish my writing a lot. And I feel I'm addicted to the ping and response. I ping the marketplace, whether it's Twitter or Amazon or Facebook or whatever, and expect some sort of response back to judge my worth as a human being. And so my almost my daily challenge is to kind of get over being metrics driven as opposed to being me driven. Absolutely. And I mean, we all do it. I mean, I I look on even something as dopey as Instagram and like, oh, how many people commented versus pushing like because like is too uh, pedestrian and maybe Jacqueline doesn't love me because she just pushed like instead of left a comment, you know, so I I think everyone feels that way. And so we have we have to break ourselves of that because it's it's baloney, you know, social media doesn't mean love. Sometimes Claudia doesn't even hit like on my post. And then I get real. You should see this house then. I get all passive aggressive. Yeah. And you walk you around the house sulking. Why didn't you push like on my thing? Yeah. Finally, I'll say, you know, you don't really like like me anymore. So I get uh, I get overly honest. But uh, another thing you point out in the book don't try to know everything. And I think that's a really important thing, too, because I think knowledge is what stops people from really kind of expanding the horizon, from taking the execution step. Well, I can't I can't start an airline until I learn how to fly a plane like, you know, they don't people don't know what to learn. How do you how do you carve out what you need to know? Yeah, I mean, somewhere along the line, and I think it was, oddly enough, of all people, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, who would probably be a fun guest for you, he said... Yeah, I, I uh, like his stuff a lot, actually. Yeah, me too. He said that that sort of, uh, the minute you're more than one human removed from the customer, your job is in jeopardy. You know, he said anybody's job is touching the person who touches the customer is doomed. And I've always thought that about my business. The thing that adds the value, I want to be really close to that thing, not the infrastructure. You know, so for instance, somebody be like, man, I'd like to be a successful blogger like you. I'm going to go take WordPress and they might actually say I'm going to take HTML lessons. And I'll say, well, though I know some rudimentary HTML, uh, I couldn't code my way out of a bag um, because that's not where the money is. You know, that's, that's why there's, you know, anytime there's a business being outsourced, that's probably not something you want to learn. And so what I do is I spend my time creating the value and not worrying about the design. Uh, we just read a, a uh, so we had, a, we have a friend who's a really smart internet guy who told us that the internet sites that make the most money are the ones that look clunky and stupid. And then, uh, Jason fried or freed, whatever his 37 signals name is, just said the same thing in an article in Inc which was basically look at Amazon. Amazon's an ugly website that makes, you know, millions and millions of dollars every day. So you know what I like to focus on, James? I like to focus on what's going to deliver value and what doesn't necessarily have to be shiny and stylish because I I just feel like though I appreciate great design, I much more appreciate an interaction that continues the relationship and makes value transactions happen. Well, and and now that you say that, I think of like Twitter is like circa 1994 HTML, like there's nothing really fancy there at all. Um, right. Yahoo, there's nothing fancy. If you had never changed internet technology after 1996, you would still have probably the most – the same websites would be successful with exactly the same designs, except for maybe That's with true. the exception of YouTube. That's true. I mean you're right. I mean YouTube is probably the only real outlier to that because, I mean, they just made it work so much better than internet video was in the 90s. But, you know, all the text-based whatever, forget it. I mean – it's just interesting that all of these things we, we get so excited about some pretty new design or something like that or some new face or something or people will say oh this is the new this is the new tech but really it's the new tech doing a lot of the same old things i mean i would think that innovators in the universe should feel sad because you know we're we're focusing on all these you know how to make a better facebook as opposed to how to make a better jetpack or something but 
you know, I don't know. I, I think things like 3D printing keep me feeling like there's a, there's hope for the universe. But it's also, I mean, theme-wise, 3D printing is another one of those things where freaks are just going to have a, a, a heyday because if you're the kind of person who can design the Neato, whatever it is, I don't know, Neato chair, then we don't have to wait for Ikea anymore. And it doesn't have to cost like it's supposed to be in a museum. And you and your friends can share your patterns or whatever. And so there's just like all these crazy interactions that are really upsetting the the deal flow of uh, typical business. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I maybe am a little more optimistic in that you and I were very much uh, – you know, kind of out there on the internet. So we're more exposed to those types of business models. But along with 3D printing, I mean, there's huge strides in like biotech, like the US is by far the leader in biotech in terms of cancer diagnostics and so on. And in, in the energy space and alternative energy, uh, we're, we're the leader by far. So there, there's a lot of innovation that I think we're going to see that's that actually is rocket science because nothing on the internet is rocket science. That all is about content and about communication, zero science. But the, the, the real sciences do have some innovation happening there. Uh, we don't disagree about that. I would say that, um, you know, the science outside of, you know, the regular business channels, I, I, I'm mostly talking about the stuff that gets heavily reported online. But you're right. I mean, there's there's big stuff in, in biotech. There's There's some really incredible stuff, you know, in pharma right now. It just seems like every day we're cracking some particular new drug open or something. And that that's quasi interesting. I also think, you know, in, in weird areas, sort of like, you know, advances in prosthetics and the like, that gets interesting. And, and how many deaf people suddenly can hear due to that some of those new surgeries. So, I mean, quality of life opportunities are really cool um and i always just think of that i guess it's a meme or something where people say this is why we can't have nice things because at the same time that all these amazing wonders are happening you know we're worrying about should we be on whatsapp or not <laughs> no it's true like and look i i i give a lot of credit to the you know the super smart people who who do all these great things like discover a new drug and, and go through that process for myself i feel like I'm too old to start a business like that. But then you start to think, well, what is my role? So, for instance, maybe uh, uh, there's a startup revolving around how to connect some of these new technologies to the people who need it or information about these new technologies to the people who need it. So, for instance, um, you know, every pharma company probably wants to know all the new drugs that are being worked on by really small companies just in case, you know, they want to see what's on the horizon. So a newsletter sort of summarizing those latest technologies would be actually interesting to a pharma business. You could charge 10000 a month subscription to the six pharma companies. Yeah, no, truly that. I, you know, I mean, that's it's interesting, like that uh, Reese's peanut butter cup model of making business happen where you say, you know, what does Airbnb teach us about pharma? Or, you know, what is um, what are these new, uh, I don't remember what they call these, but those test kitchens that you can go into and you can basically rent time in a kitchen now that has all the things that the government needs you to have to make sure you're not killing people uh, to try out your food ideas, for instance, and all I that. Thought that. I thought that was what the Midwest was for. <laughs> You're quite Just well. kidding. All the Minnesotans are writing you in right now to complain. But yeah, no, I think that, I mean, I'm always interested in that. Like, you know, um, Julian Smith has made this, this project. He's my sometimes author on books. He made a project called Breather, which is this idea that maybe you just need a quiet space to take a break. And it could be work stuff. It could be yoga. It could just be a nap. So he's made Breather. And when I asked him, so what's that compete with? Like Airbnb? And he goes, no, it competes with Starbucks. And in some ways, it competes with like those Regis offices. But, you know, uh, it's it's I guess then sort of the Airbnb for Starbucks or people who want a quick yoga break, you know, so I think that's interesting. That is really interesting. Like I I was once at a dinner where um, there was uh, the uh, one of the top people from The Gap and one of the top people from Victoria's Secret and and a bunch of interesting people around the table. And the guy from The Gap was uh, very upset because he realized that he needed to make his stores a destination as opposed to just a place where people buy clothes. Like people had to want to go to the Gap for community reasons as opposed to just for commerce reasons. And you mentioned Starbucks. They sort of figured it out that people like to hang out in a Starbucks and, do, you know, work on their projects, that he has free Wi-Fi at the Starbucks and, and so on. I think uh, every kind of physical store needs to learn how to be more of a 
a destination, and it sounds like Julian with Breather is creating just a destination, which is kind of a cool concept. Yeah, and, and that also could be the danger. But uh, like any good new startupy boy, he's got a few pivots in mind in case maybe that doesn't work so well. Uh, meaning the infrastructure to make those kinds of interactions could happen, and thus any place could be sort of you know take advantage of that breather mindset. So yeah, I, I think that. Um, you know, one big trend that I'm seeing, again, that sort of plays to these weird freak ideas is that, you know, we all want something kind of different. The yoga crowd wants something really different than uh, the hardcore, I don't know, golfing community or something like that. But there are these kind of weird overlaps. And there are people sort of, you know, to use a Dungeons and Dragons term, they're like multi-class characters. And so they're they're like the wizard thief of our world is maybe uh, yoga slash um, construction worker or something. And they're looking for their tribe. And I think that we're going to find that nowadays. And I think there's going to be someone, well, I mean, Hey, the, um, Mark divine just released eight weeks to seal fit, which is a blend of CrossFit martial arts and yoga for, uh, potentially Navy seals candidates, but also fat business schlubs like me just trying to get more fit. Well, you know, it's funny about the combination of ideas because when I first met my my wife, she was, uh, I mean, she is a yoga instructor, but she's also from Argentina. So I, of course, put on my entrepreneur's hat and I'm thinking, you have to start Tango Yoga. I don't know what it is. I have no clue, but it sounds cool. And you're from Argentina and you do yoga. So put it together. It's Tango Yoga. But alas, she has never done it. I still don't know know, what it would be. In Spanish, tango yoga would be I have yoga. <laughs> so that would be it's already branded. It's all perfect. I have right. yoga, but I like tango yoga. Right. Some kind of like dance yoga, but she wasn't that into it. Um, but I do think the source of good ideas is almost always the combination of ideas. I mean, Facebook, of course, combines the Internet with stalking and it became the largest <laughs> social network on the planet. So, and almost every internet idea that we use now is a combination of older ideas. So like Airbnb is the internet combined with, you know, hotels and sharing and so on. I I always tell people, make two lists of separate ideas and then about completely different topics and then combine them to see what you come up with. And the results are always very, very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Airbnb is Zipcar for your spare room. You know, I think that it's interesting that the the other part of that that I always think about, and that this is uh, something else I think about the way Freaks is, is that, uh, for instance, in Boston here, the guy who runs Bo Loco, which is a, a small chain of um, burrito companies, uh, he sold his company and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And so he decided to sign up for Uber and become a cab driver for a while just for fun. Uh, because he didn't have anything else to do for a while. So he was just, you know, the money obviously wasn't huge enough for him to want to do it for the money, but he really loved the conversations. And he kind of liked trying to work on the systems and whatever. Airbnb, there's a story in the book even about the fact that, um, you know, this guy wanted to open a bed and breakfast and his wife said, why don't we start with just one room? I stole that from Alex Franzen. And then, you know, I think that Square and Kickstarter, I mean, Basically, we're just removing all those gaps in permission, James. So one of the other cool things that the Internet has done since the beginning has said you don't need anyone else's permission. And, you know, everything that fails is always when it's, you know, firewalled in or locked into kind of the old rules. And, uh, you know, people get scared of that, though. People want permission. Like people, people assume that there's a stop sign everywhere they turn. We're conditioned to think that, that, oh, you can't do that until someone says, oh, yeah, okay, it's. You waited long enough. You paid your dues. Now, now you can step through the secret door. Like I feel like people subconsciously want permission, and that's a big thing to kind of get over if you want to be an entrepreneur or even an employee. Uh you have to get over that feeling of uh, I can't do this. I agree. I think that you know, uh, if I were the kind of guy who you know, there's always those funny images of you know, fat furry guys in tutus i would love to dress like a fairy princess and have a little i haven't sparkles. seen those i haven't seen those images by the way are these the sorts of things you search for on instagram yeah, that's, or that's me on the internet baby always looking for fat furry men in tutus.com <laughs> but i was thinking you know the permission fairy would be a really great website to make and just have it just i don't know almost like those websites that are single serving websites the one that like just screams no or whatever or the it's a trap website i would love to one to just say congratulations you have permission now go do that thing 
Yeah, it reminds me what in 1994 there was a website called uh, the Big Red Button that does nothing, and so you go to this website and it was just a big red button on the front page, and you click it and it like clicks down and up and that, but it does nothing, and no, it was a hugely to- popular website at the time. Like they were actually selling ads. Oh my gosh! Never gets old, really. I, you know, I could see, I could see a resurgence of that. You know, the big red button that does nothing to dot com. Well, one time it reminds me of one time I met uh, Yuri Geller. I don't know if you mm. know who he is. He's like spoonbender. Yeah, he's a famous psychic uh, who bends spoons. He was like friends with Michael Jackson and so on. So, so I met him, and he wanted to make you know UriGeller dot com, which is going to be a website about how you can get psychic powers. And he wanted to kind of almost take this idea of the big red button. Uh, he wanted to put a big button on the front page of his site, and if you click on it, people would get more psychic. And that was his idea because it would it, he would share his psychic abilities with the website. And so just clicking on this button would get you to be more psychic. So so everybody wants to click on something to go forward. They feel they again, I feel it's related to this, uh, you know, permission fantasy that 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 you need to survive or, or to thrive. Wow. I'm still back on everyone wants to click somewhere to get forward. I, I really think you're on to something there. That might be the next book. Yeah. Permission fantasy. Per, permission. The permission fairy. That's right. Now, let talk. Tell me about your first book you did with Julian Smith, who you already mentioned, uh, Trust Agents. It's a New York Times bestseller. I just want to ask a very straightforward question: How many copies you need to sell to be on the New York Times bestseller list? You know, it varies, uh, but it, I, I swear to God, it was the slow week. We only sold like two thousand five hundred and ninety copies that week, and that lend that put us in. I think they only count the top twenty, and anything below twenty doesn't count. So we weren't even in the top ten of the New York Times bestseller list. We were hey, like, but I didn't know that. All I know is you're a New York Times bestseller. Exactly. Well, and that's just it. I mean, there is no asterisk. Uh, it just is. And it was a very slow week. It was just one week. We were also Wall Street Journal, Amazon and Inc. and all that. But of course, the only one anyone cares about, it seems, is that. But uh, the next week, you would have had to sell 8,000 copies because it was this huge week. I forget who came out, but, but it was you know, Gladwell or you know Godin or any of our friends like that. And I wouldn't, I couldn't have even possibly have made it on there. So it was. I, I always tell people that. I say, I always had that horrible uh, Groucho Marx thought in my head of you never want to belong to a club that would have you. And that's how I felt when we got there. It was but, it was a great honor, but it was an honor for about six minutes. And and what do you think it did for you in terms of writing career or in terms of your contacts and so on? Like, in a sense, The New York Times gave you permission to do something when it made you a bestseller. What did it give you permission to do? Oh, well, I, I'll say this. It did everything for my career because uh, it's amazing how many people uh, say this basic thing, which is, uh, you know, I could say any other credit, uh, but if they hear New York Times bestseller, they go, oh. And, you know, if you're one once, it goes on every other book you've ever written because all it says is from the New York Times bestselling author of, or they just say from the New York Times bestselling author. And it can, that's on my books forevermore. Uh, which is kind of this weird thing. It's like a, it's a piece of proof. So it's amounted to lots of book deals. It's it's amounted to uh, lots of people, you know, falsely thinking I'm really smart. And I, I, I try really hard to dissuade people from that. I like to say it's bestseller, like not a best idea. It just means people bought a lot of it, you know. And I also tell authors that because authors, whenever they're telling me about their book or telling me about how it's such a great idea, it's bound to be a bestseller. And I always say, no, the bestseller is the person who knows how to sell books. And, uh, I don't, I, in no way do I know that I know how to sell books, but this one time it was my first ever book. I had done so many things for so many other people that I said, you know, it's 11 years that I've pretty much never asked for a thing, but this new book's coming out. If you were ever thinking about it, what do you think? And we can figure it out. Uh, have you ever thought about doing any kind of like book marketing for other people? Um, no, because I'm not that smart. You know, I'm, I'm no. Right I don't believe that you're not that smart. You've, you're, you're very smart, Chris. Okay, author I'm sorry, of but like. I don't know how to book market? How many books have you written now? This will be seven. Uh, the Freaks is seven, and none of them have sold even as much as Choose Yourself. Choose Yourself blows. You could add all my book sales together, and you beat me. So. Uh, well, well, okay, but you've written all these books. That requires you know some hard work. How many businesses have you started? Uh, three. I think three right now, uh, not counting some of the small ones that were crushed before they were even, you know, 
publicly known to anybody but yeah uh, well let's include those how many how many ideas have you tried out to the extent that you you know thought they were gonna maybe be a business oh gosh maybe 20 or 30 or something i mean i i lost a lot of money in 2011 starting things and then realizing after some investment that it wasn't a good idea so i was basically my own r&d function uh for quite a while but you know, I learned a lot. I, I love to say that I paid for an MBA uh, cash uh, in one year, but I would say that in a lot of ways it feels like that. I learned how not to do a lot of things, which is very helpful. And what did you learn? What are some of the things you learned what not to do? Uh, don't build software that rides on top of somebody else's platform, especially if they're not especially uh, an ecosystem kind of a player. Um, don't try to presume. What's an example of that? I, I don't uh, know. Okay, so I built a... Uh, I started to build a piece of software that was going to help people do something on top of an email service provider such that they would use WordPress to craft uh, really simple uh, templated emails out through an email service provider because most email service providers templates are really ugly and horrible and, and difficult to understand. So I thought maybe I'll just make this WordPress meets email service provider app. And, you know, it was kind of a good idea, except that I spent too much money trying to make it. And the company that I was building it on top of folded. And that was the end of that. So, oh, that's not bad. um, you know, but I, I could have, you know, invested more and just put it on somebody else's platform that was going to stay alive, but it just dawned on me that, Maybe this is a bad plan, and so I shelved it. The other thing I also thought uh, is is a volume thing. Like I'll make nine ideas and launch them at the same time because Branson does that. But you know, Branson has a few thousand more employees than I do, and so what he does is he hands his idea to somebody who can run with it, and he's sort of the executive producer of the movie. But if you ever watch the movie credits roll by, there's a little more than just the executive producer, and I didn't have that infrastructure, so I learned that repeatedly in the last few years. Well, you know, in, in 2006, I was in a situation where I had to start another business, and I, I went through a similar thing. I started nine businesses simultaneously. Uh, none of them worked out, and I, I had a business partner uh, at the time, and he was like, okay, let's just give up on this. It's too much money. And we tried one more final idea, a tenth idea, and that one worked out, uh, which was stockpicker.com. But uh, it was it was definitely getting scary. Like, how do you deal with that fear when things are not working out and you're and you mentioned it earlier people are afraid to go homeless i i'm afraid i've had many different successes failure successes i'm always afraid no matter where i am in the cycle i'm always afraid of going homeless even though as you pointed out that's a ridiculous fear but how do you get over that fear because you need to get over that in order to start being successful um you know i think that it's tricky. One of the things a lot of people do are these sort of all or nothing kind of projects. I've had a lot of people come up to me at events. This is, this is the most terrifying sentence I ever hear at an event besides one guy who told me that he uh, took a beer bottle off the table that I was at. So that now he had copy of my DNA. That was terrifying. But the second most terrifying thing that I've heard much more often is someone will come up to me and say, I'm really inspired by you. I quit my job and now I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. And I, I, I say, what? Like I never quit my job. I had a salary all the way up until I could cover my own salary with my own earnings. And, you know, I never once was sort of floating with no money in this whole project. Now, there's months where I couldn't pay myself very much. But I, you know, I never just once turned off the pace picket and decided, let's just make money happen because it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it was, I'll tell you, with my, with my first business, um, I stayed at my full-time job probably for a full two years after I started the business, uh, just, and at this point, the business was on the side doing well. I, I had about 15 to 20 employees. And it was only then when I felt like I could pay my salary for at least six months that I quit my job. And on my first day of being full-time entrepreneur at this new business, we lost like a huge client. And so I could no longer pay my salary for the six months as far as I knew unless I got a new client and so I literally like just went out of the office and started crying because I couldn't I couldn't deal with the fact that I had made this decision finally and then I got I got afraid again like that was the, that was the first time I encountered that fear the first of maybe hundreds of times and it's really not a pleasant feeling no, not even at all. And, uh, you know, I, I got a really early piece of advice from somebody when I started to do my consulting type business. Um, and it was, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not going to remember. Anyway, he said this one thing. He basically said, you should make sure that your customer should never be more than 15% of your revenue. You know, so any one customer can't be more than 15% of your revenue. And I thought that was huge because it, it just seems like, uh, you know, once you get that equation down, you start going, oh, I can better plan for this. Because he goes, you can operate at 85%, uh, but it's pretty hard if you, like, drop 50% of your revenue in one shot. And so if I hadn't had that piece of advice, I would have, you know, made even more mistakes than I did. Well, the the one time that I had a customer that was more than uh, well, well, since that first experience, that I had a customer that was more than fifteen percent of my revenue. Um, I gave them ownership in the company so that I would guarantee that they couldn't leave me. You know, that's I, interesting. I essentially handed over fifty percent of the company to to guarantee their revenues, and it was a nice that they were essentially a hundred percent of my revenue, so it worked out. And then and then they were so much tied to me that they had to then buy the company in order to, you know, I was so much related to their, their, their own balance sheet at that point that they, they had to buy me to make it worth it to them. So it, it saved me. It's a beautiful plan. Yeah. Another time, actually, I had another, I had another business, my, my fund of hedge funds. Uh, I had one investor who was maybe about 80% of my investment and he then went out of business so I, I had to give him his money back, and it was a very uh, stressful period because uh, I, I didn't have the money. I'd already invested it, so it was it was very stressful. I, I actually bought a book, The Tao of Star Wars, so I could I wanted to basically use the principles from Star Wars to survive this horrible period in my in my business. I think you've written about that, but what I don't remember my memento level memory lately is how did that work for you? Uh, it ended up working out really well because he was in a position where he had to return money to his investors, and so we ended up we, we ended up doing like a deal with all of his uh, investors, where they then became direct investors in me, and it worked out okay for them. So there you go. and it worked out okay for me. It worked out okay for everyone. Uh, he can't stand me anymore, but that's that happens in business quite a bit. That's, you know, business is a strange thing like that, especially when a lot of money is moving back and forth. But I don't know. It, it strikes me that your goals for a future business might have a lot more relationship mindedness uh, than your past businesses. But I just might be making that up. I think I no longer want to do uh, a business at all because I think and I think this is another common mistake that many people make. They think that in order to be independent and on their own and even generate wealth, they have to start a business and either sell it or have it make you know millions of dollars in sales. But I think there's a lot of ways now in today's world where you can build wealth and be self-reliant and independent without just starting a business and selling it. I think you could be in the middle between transactions of two other businesses, or you can, um, you know, sell content or uh, advise people and, and get pieces of their businesses. And if you do that across twenty businesses, you're, you know, and some of them do well, you're going to be very successful. So I think there's a lot of ways to to generate wealth without just doing a startup. And in fact, I would say all of my business now is relationship based, uh, probably because I no longer think about starting a business. I think that's super clever. Very big. Well, and it sounds like a lot of what you're doing, like owner mag is certainly relationship based. Uh, you don't really have a lot of employees for that. And that, so you, you've created a magazine owner, which you have online at ownermag.com, uh, which I'm a, a writer for happy to say. So, you know, I'm sure that's an interesting business for you. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, so businesses are built to make money or whatnot. And owner is not, is the smallest of the revenue streams that I have right now. But I just keep believing that there's some, there's some value there that will be, you know, a lot more uh, picked up by people. So I'm not worried about the revenue right away, which is the first time I think I've said that running a business. Um, that seems more Silicon Valley to me. But um, what I feel is that what I've said to a lot of people is that Owner Magazine is actually more like a loyalty program cleverly disguised as a magazine. And once we get that concept to make even more accurate sense uh, with some other announcements that will be coming out, I think that it's going to be an exciting time because – Really what I'm trying to teach is uh, sort of business loyalty 2.0 uh, because I think a lot of people 
one of the things that really frustrates me is that, uh, you know, there's this, there's this concept called loyalty right now, but I don't mean those little plastic cards on your key rings. That's data. And for the most part, data isn't loyalty. It's, it's always used against you most times. Like um, grocery stores never say, Oh, Hey Chris, I noticed you're out of eggs. Uh, but they do say, I noticed that you buy these eggs. We'd rather you buy these eggs because they paid us to ask you to do that. Um, so I'm really trying to think up ways to help a business that, you know, could benefit from loyalty and relationship mindedness, you know, real estate's one of those kinds of companies, uh, hospitality, uh, restauranting, obviously there's lots of businesses where loyalty is a, is a valuable tool. And I'm just thinking that there's a lot of ways to spin that. And this magazine is just kind of the, the prow of that vessel. So we shall see. Well, it all sounds good. You have a lot of things going on. You have owner mag, you have the, the freak shall inherit the earth, uh, which just came out, which, I, I really encourage everyone to buy. I sort of think, like, with Choose Yourself, uh, there's kind of this concept that everybody needs to you – know, it's like what you were saying, stop asking for permission, choose themselves because the gatekeepers are going away. And there's this flip side where the economy is such that you have to now start thinking in more self-reliant ways because – there, there's, there is no loyalty in the corporate system to take care of you. Like that is kind of was a was a fairy tale to begin with. And I sort of feel like there's almost a library of books of which, you know, Freaks is is one of them that all are around the same concept. And, you know, Seth Godin has written about this. Uh, our mutual pal Michael Ellsberg is coming out, you know, with a book. You should you should invest in yourself. Uh I think there's a lot of this concept that's out there now. Uh, people are realizing that the, the traditional corporate America has let them down. And more than ever before, you need to essentially choose yourself or be a freak or do whatever and find that, that personal success. I totally agree. And I'm thrilled to be someone sort of, you know, finding a genre. Well, I mean, it's like that post you made about that there should be some kind of a scene. And we and and I said something about, boy, it'd be nice to have one. And Clay Hebert said, no, you're already in a scene. And I think I'm part of that scene. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, thanks so much, Chris, for coming on this show. It is the first of hopefully many times you come on the show. Uh, and I've been on your podcast, of course, many times, which is always, always fascinating. Uh, so, and I, again, I encourage people to buy your book. I'm really excited about it. You're very kind, James. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk. Thanks, Chris. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.